I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about AUKUS, the U.S.-U.K.-Australia deal, for nuclear submarines. I have with us Dr. Mike Green, who is the head of our Asia programs. He's a senior vice president at CSIS, and he's also our Japan chair. Dr. Green, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Mike, I got to ask you, let's just, we call it AUKUS. What does AUKUS actually mean? Well, it stands for Australia-UK-US alliance, and they're calling it an alliance. But the reality is we already have security treaties with Australia and us and with Britain, we have NATO, and it wasn't ratified by the Senate like a treaty. So it's not really an alliance, a new alliance in the sense that NATO is, because we already have alliances with these two countries. They're also part of the intelligence sharing, what we call the Five Eyes, That's right. right. They're, they're the, the, the two most important, frankly, other members of Five Eyes, which also includes Canada and New Zealand. So this AUKUS announcement, first of all, it was a surprise to a lot of countries, including France, which we'll get to, but it really was two things. First, it was a submarine deal. The Australians need new submarines. They went to the French to build them. The French, according to the Australians, were way behind schedule and not able to engineer what Australia needed. And meanwhile, the Chinese threat at sea was you know, exponentially increasing. So a lot of this came from Australia. And they convinced the U.S. and Britain to share nuclear propulsion engine, not weapons, but nuclear engine technology, which we've never done, so that they could create the most advanced submarines in the world. And that solved their engineering problem. And then for the U.S., it puts in two decades, eight more nuclear-powered submarines under the waters in the Indo-Pacific, which as a military matter really resets the balance of power because the Chinese were moving out big time above the sea, under the sea. You know, the, the, the PLA is basically building a new Japanese Navy every eight or 10 years. So just huge trend lines that were very worrisome. So this was fundamentally a fu an engineering procurement submarine deal, but with a really important, you know, balance of power component. But the other aspect of it is geopolitical. A decade ago, China kind of had Australia and Britain, two of our closest allies, moving in their direction. The Chancellor of the Exchequer, David Osborne, wanted London to be the Renminbi Center for Europe. The Australian polls showed the Australians kind of felt good about China. That was when Hu Jintao was in charge in China. Now it's Xi Jinping and China is hammering them. And in particular, Australia, just we can talk about it, but just relentless pressure on them. Embargoes of everything from wine to coal. And so geopolitically, this really represents London and Canberra saying, enough, we're with the US. China's not going to push us around anymore. So that's, that's big. Of course, the French are the losers, and that's the other piece of this. So, Mike, there's an awful lot in this to unpack, but I want to start with asking you, some are calling this the dawn of a new Pacific age. President Biden says he's not, he said you know, pretty famously at the UN yesterday, he's not trying to get us into a new Cold War, presumably with China. What does this mean to you? I mean, you've been probably more than anybody, someone who has sounded the alarm, who's exposed what China's been doing in the South China Sea over the past decade. You've been somebody who's been involved at, at high-level policy discussions when you were senior director on the NSC during the Bush administration and as an advisor to successive presidents and their staffs following, including the, the current. So, you know, 
President Obama declared that there was going to be a pivot away from Europe to Asia. Is this a continuation of the pivot? What do we have here? Is this truly a dawn of a new Pacific age? I think it is, although it's basically a very big deal on submarines. And it's basically two of our closest allies, you know, unequivocally saying we're in with you, the US, in this competition with China. Implicitly, but unmistakably, that's the message. That's a big deal. But I think you're pointing to an even bigger deal in some ways, which is President Obama said in 2011, he's pivoting to Asia. But a lot of people asked, you know, where's the beef? Where's the pivot? And this sends a really strong signal to the world, in part the fact that the US and Britain and France were willing to do this, knowing France would be furious. This really says that, you know, the center of our geopolitical future is Asia. And throughout the Cold War, the center of competition with the Soviet Union was not Asia, it was the Fulda Gap. You know, we thought rightly that if the Soviets dominated Europe, we, we lose. And of course, we cared about Japan and Korea, but it was Europe. During the Korean War, for example, 1950-51, well, we had Marines and airmen and soldiers dying in the Korean Peninsula. The army sent more divisions to Germany than Korea because we were that was the central front, the folded gap in Germany, the invasion route for the Soviets. So we had to stop. You know, Heather Connolly and I have a piece coming out that says basically, wake up Europe, wake up world. The folded gap in the 21st century is the island chain in the Western Pacific. That's the invasion route, that's the gap, that's the, the sort of gyroscope of global stability that's now being contested. Fascinating. And we're not going to let China have it. And that's the signal we've chronicled more than anyone with overhead imagery, with analysis, China's military buildup, artificial islands in the South China Sea. We just had a piece from Greg Poling in AMTI, Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative, about how China's Liaoning aircraft carriers will use their artificial islands to project even further into the Pacific. We've shown with imagery and analysis, dual use port building in the Indian Ocean. China's got a larger Navy than the US now, at least in terms of the number of ships. Ours are still better. And as I said, they're outpacing the Japanese, the Koreans, Australians. So we had a very real problem. And this redresses it to a significant extent. But, you know, they ruffled a lot of feathers in the yeah, process. And it lays down a marker. And it's not just a pivot. This is, this is addressing a very real need, as you just described. Yeah, I think that, well, the Chinese, first of all, are furious. And they're, in recent years, I have to say, when I was a grad student at SAIS, I was forced to read North Korean propaganda when I was studying Korean. Talk about making your head explode. The Chinese official line now sounds to me like North Korea. It's kind of over the top, but they're really unhappy because they were moving out into the Pacific, into the ocean with some impunity. This signals that they're not going to be able to do that. And now some are saying, oh, this is a militarization and this is containing China. It's not. It's not. You know, Biden, Johnson, you know, Scott Morrison, Australia, they're different. This is not the way the Trump administration articulated China policy, which was kind of a containment sounding policy where there was no room for cooperation. All three countries want to cooperate with China on trade, on climate change, and are, not, are seeking to change China's behavior, not contain China's growth or success. But Biden has very clearly said the United States is a Pacific power. Yep. Yeah. It's interesting because he was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for a long time when most of the hearings were on Europe and the Middle East, frankly. Right. And positioned himself as the guy in the Senate on the Democratic side in foreign policy. And especially on the transatlantic relationship. 
Right. More so than the Pacific. Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, French speaking, again, in, in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee as the, as, the, as the lead staffer, very focused on Europe, Middle East. This is not an administration full of Asia hands once you get above Kurt Campbell, the senior coordinator. But it is an administration now that has completely embraced Asia as our priority. So Kurt's done his job. Kurt was hired because that's the priority, and he did his job in convincing him to stick with it. The problem is we're a global power. We still have Russia. We need Europe to deal with China. And the collateral damage to Europe, I think, has surprised the administration. The French are furious because they're losing an almost $70 billion submarine deal. But frankly, they knew they were going to lose the deal. Because the it was deal wasn't for nuclear subs. It was for conventional subs. Yeah, the French had a nuclear sub. They were going to put a diesel engine in. So maybe at some level, the French are thinking, well, maybe we would have sold you our our nuclear-powered subs. But the bottom line is the French were not delivering. The Australians were clear with them. But it's not just about the money for them. No, I think, well, they have an election in about six months. Yeah, let's get into that in a second. Yeah. It's a prestige thing for France. You yeah. know, France, as Britain stumbles after Brexit, France is emerging as you know a defense capability comparable to Britain's and Japan's and Korea's. They're all about the same size in terms of their spending. But France was stepping out in the post-Brexit era as a real a, a real player and as in many ways the center of Europe's defense and security because Germany's very passive on these issues compared to Japan another former well, wartime enemy but the Germans have gone in a different direction from Japan and Macron has positioned himself and Macron has positioned himself this is very embarrassing and right he said that we can't rely on the even before Trump he said we can't rely on the United States for our European defense we need to get stronger so the French are embarrassed. They've lost a lot of money. They have an election. They're taking it much worse than I think the administration anticipated. Some of what the French are doing is really not going to amount to much. For example, Macron's reaching out to Modi in India and the Indonesians and, and talking about a less militarized you know, approach to the Pacific that France will champion. But when you go to the Pacific, when you go to Asia, people are not looking to the French. <laughs> so I'm not sure that India is going to change its participation in the quad with us and Japan and Australia, for example, or that Indonesia is going to somehow change its foreign policy because the French are upset with us. But within Europe, it is hurting us. And I think more than the administration hurt. The EU is largely rallying behind France in putting us, the US, in the timeout chair. I don't think it's permanent, but it has done some damage. And I think the administration is surprised, and I suspect they didn't fully think through how to unveil this, how to roll it out to minimize the damage. And this is, of course, on top of Afghanistan. Yeah. And Biden's plan, now it really appears much more clear, is that his plan all along was we need to pivot to Asia, we need to contain China, his foreign policy is centered around containing or changing the behavior of China, You know, the, the so-called strategic competition with China that we're always talking about. That's the cornerstone of a Biden foreign policy. Couldn't do that until we got out of Afghanistan. So we have the get out of Afghanistan. The French are upset with us because we, they weren't consulted. And then you have this. Now they're doubly upset with us. So it, you have a double whammy here with the French. And the French aren't going to suddenly you know, cheat on us and form an alliance with the Chinese. They have their own huge problems with China. They have the largest exclusive economic zone in the Pacific, in the South Pacific, because of their former colonies. And the Chinese are encroaching on their maritime space too. So they're not going to do that. But it does throw sand in the gears in the transatlantic relationship. And the Chinese will try to make hay of that. So the question I'm trying to figure out is why, yes, the French would be upset. No, you could not tell the French we were going to do this because they obviously would have tried to sabotage it. So I understand all that. But 
Yeah, I think back when I was in the NSC, we sold F-16s to Pakistan in the war on terror. And we were, at the same time, strengthening our a new strategic partnership with India. And we knew the Indians would be unhappy. And we spent hours around the Situation Room table and in the State Department thinking through how do we make this less damaging to India, to our relationship with India. It doesn't appear that really happened. And, you know, the strategic building blocks that the Biden administration is putting in place, except for trade policy, are basically right on. Competition with China, alliances, so forth. They're having trouble with execution. And I think at least part of it, frankly, is that they don't have people in place. They, they, they have very few political appointees in the assistant secretary jobs, in the ambassadorships for Europe or Asia. And this was some of the same criticism that President Trump suffered. Yeah. And, you know, who's to blame? Well, you know, I talked to friends on the Hill, on the Republican side, and they say Biden's not sending nominees fast enough. You talk to the Biden administration and they say, well, you know, Hawley and Ted Cruz are blocking all our nominees. I have two kids. You you have two kids too, I think, you know, in those I situations. Have you have three. Oh, that's more complicated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you have two, you basically say you're both wrong. You yeah. know, apologize and make nice. Oh boy. <laughs> three, I can't imagine. <laughs> well, three three for us is lucky because two are now in college and we at least have one guy at home. So it's so two on one. Yeah. That's that's a good balance of power. Well, we're lucky we still have somebody left at home. That's good. So So really it's both branches of government. Yeah. Are to blame in my view. And you and I think you see the results in the poor execution on Afghanistan and the poor execution on AUKUS. An, an excellent and necessary idea that caused inevitable damage to relations with France, but but in a way that hurt us with Europe more broadly that we could probably, probably have avoided. So that that's the downside. But I don't think it's permanent. The Europeans have their own problems with China. That is not going to change. Now, with France, as you mentioned, Macron is up for re-election in the spring. He is likely to face a very intense runoff against Marie Le Pen, which Marie Le Pen is an ultra-nationalist. And some are saying Macron is playing this situation up to make him look like he's anti-US for domestic politics purposes. Do you buy into that at all? To quote... A certain French character in the movie Casablanca, I am shocked, shocked <laughs> that uh, Macron would engage in such a posturing about the United States in an election. It's almost- C'est magnifique. <laughs> it's almost standard operating procedure in French and German elections if there's any tension at all in transatlantic relations. I can't think of a- in our day, it was Iraq and Chirac and Schroeder ran against the U.S. After, frankly, both of them promising President Bush they wouldn't, but it was just too tempting. Uh, it's it's very different from Asia, where our allies are a lot more frightened and worried and want us in. And you can see that in the way Abe tolerated Donald Trump and really cultivated a friendship that no European leader was able to cultivate. The Golden Golf Club. A lot of it was golf. He would practice, Abe would practice with his staff before he met with Trump. He had to get it right. Because if Japan showed daylight between Tokyo and Washington, China would exploit it. They just didn't have the latitude to get it wrong. And I think Australia, Korea, and increasingly India, actually, are in a similar position. So the Europeans probably, I think it was a bit of a wake-up call for Europe, actually, about how important our Asian alliances are. Of course, it's bad strategy to sort of pick one over the other. We need both. And we're in a little bit in a position now where it looks like we're picking Asian allies over Europe, and the administration's got to fix that. So how do they fix that, Mike? Well, frankly, we have to get through the French election. I think- I mean, President Biden can't even get a phone call with I Macron know. right now. I know. Which is and kind of ludicrous, isn't it? It is ludicrous. And with, withdrawing the ambassador, ambassadors from Canberra and Washington is, you know, it's over the top. But so part of it they're doing, which is don't overreact. 
and be patient. And the quad meeting coming up on September 24th, I don't know if they'll do it, but I would think it would be good for the for Modi and Morrison and Suga and Biden to talk about the importance of Europe, talk about the importance of, of democratic solidarity, and I think just patiently work their way through it. The French may demand things of us that we, you know, the Australians will have to pay, I think, a couple hundred million dollars for getting out of the deal. There's some rumors the French will demand we also pay. Um, and that stuff's ludicrous. We're not going to do it. I think just don't overreact. That's one good thing about uh, people like Tony Blinken who grew up in France. They know how to play this, but they did some damage and they have to be focused and deliberate about it. And, uh, you know, people like Kurt are going to have to go to Europe and and sort of patch things up and talk hat strategically. In not hat in hand. You know, we didn't do anything wrong in terms of the strategy. It, it just, you know, lesson, we need to coordinate better. I turn lemons into lemonade. Lesson here is we need to coordinate more on Asia. Yeah. I mean, like how much do we really care that France is upset right now? You know, in the Asia context, frankly, the diplomats, journalists I've talked to from Japan, Australia, India don't really care at all. <laughs> but in our transatlantic context, it matters. And China is a global problem, not just an Asia problem, especially on technology, human rights, trade issues. And we've got to start patching things up with Europe. I would I would be patient with the French to work through the election. It's a larger Europe problem. It's not just a France yeah. problem. It's a larger problem. I would really get ready for whatever, you know, the constellation comes in Germany to engage in a very serious and high-level way. I'd work with the other countries that are much more aligned with us, frankly, like, like the Dutch. And they're going to have to, you know, step up their European diplomacy a bit. Well, Biden, of course, campaigned on rebuilding our alliances. This seems to fly in the face of it, but you're saying it's really not. It's just a momentary situation. Yeah, I think it is probably momentary. To be fair to my our colleague, Heather, who watches Europe, she's worried it could run deeper. And the French influence within Europe is big. And it may pass with the election, maybe a way to blunt Marie Le Pen, but it could last and it could get in the way of coordination on some issues where we really need a G7 consensus, which includes France, a UN Security Council consensus, which includes France, and NATO consensus, which for now includes France. So I think they, AUKUS was the right move. It was, it was a bold move. We needed a bold move right now in the Pacific and it's playing very well in places like Japan and India, not just Australia. Now we have a lot of repair work to do. And it's going to be retail diplomacy, I think, not some the, – the French will not let us do a big, bold move with Europe right now. It's going to be retail diplomacy. But again, that's where, you know, the fact we don't have ambassadors and assistant secretaries in place is kind of hurting us. Now, countering China has been something, you know, certainly President Trump made a cornerstone of his policy. He did it mostly through trade. President Biden is, is taking a different approach, but he's also making countering China or curbing China's behavior, as you say – a cornerstone of his foreign policy. How is this playing politically in the United States? Well, <laughs> being nice to China is not a way to get votes in the United States right now. And there's a pretty strong bipartisan consensus in the Congress that we need to step up. We've been too complacent about defense spending, about our alliances, about controlling sensitive technologies. And you have some outliers, you know, the Hollies and the Marco Rubios who are going to say that whatever Biden does, it's weak on China. That's politics. But in terms of policy, when you get behind closed doors with members of both parties, there's a pretty robust consensus. Not 100 percent, but pretty robust. You know, the technology bills in the Senate on China had, had two-thirds support, you know. So, and, and you don't get that in the Congress on most things. The technology bills were co-sponsored by, you know, Todd Young from Ohio Republican, Chuck Schumer. So, there's a 
bipartisanship on China policy and an urgency. And that reflects public opinion polls, which have deteriorated about China because of a long list of things Xi Jinping is doing to Uyghurs, to Hong Kong, to Tibet, to Japan, to Taiwan, and to technology. But we've surveyed this. People can find it. It's a year old now, but on CSIS China survey, if you Google that, and we surveyed a full public survey, 1,000 people and 500 elites in different sectors, labor, business, and so forth. Remarkable consensus across all sectors of the United States that we need to step up competition with China. Strong support for defending our allies in Asia, support for some decoupling on technology, but not containment, not completely cutting off trade. A lot of soybean farmers, a lot of, you know, a lot of people need the China market, but on key technologies, 5G and so forth, pretty robust consensus. We need to protect the crown jewels, work with allies. On human rights and democracy issues, even in the business community, we found a majority supported pressing China harder. So that's a, there aren't many things in Washington now where there's bipartisan consensus, but China's strategy is one. That doesn't mean that partisans won't attack the other guy for being weak. And it also doesn't mean there's a complete agreement on every aspect of our strategy. But the idea that we need to step up and step up with our allies is, is about as robust as almost anything right now, including infrastructure. So when you peel back the veneer of polarization, there actually really is a consensus on this cornerstone foreign policy issue. There is, and the consensus in, is maintained in part because the public doesn't trust China and nobody wants to be weak. So even if Joe Biden woke up tomorrow and said, you know, guys, we're wrong. I got to work with Xi. He's not a bad guy. His political advisors, setting aside the foreign policy advisors, would say, you can't go there, Mr. President. You'll get clobbered in the midterms in re-election for being weak on China. That is a big issue. I drove with the family to wonderful New Orleans and, and Minnesota all over this summer. And I was a little surprised to see signs, not surprised to see pro-Trump and anti-Biden signs, but a lot of them were, were anti-China signs. Yeah. When you get out into West Virginia, rural Ohio, parts of South Carolina. So China is, nobody wants to be soft on China right now. Right, and, and the opinion polls really do show yeah. that it, it being anti-China is a bipartisan thing. And in China, frankly, Xi Jinping is on a social mobilization campaign of his own. He's seeking a third, unprecedented third term as leader. Basically, he's changed the rules so that he can rule for life. And he's he's not backing down. He's whipping up a pretty nationalistic rhetoric on the Chinese side too. And it's making it uh, even harder for those on the US side who want to try to build bridges to do that. For example, Wendy Sherman, John Kerry, others have said we should cooperate on climate change. And the official Chinese response is not till you stop doing all the things we don't like on Tibet or on Taiwan. And so that's, there's no safe ground for someone to come forward in American politics and say, let's build bridges right now. I think we'll get past this, but that's the politics yeah. of it. How are we going to, you know, in your view, move past this with Europe so that we can, you know, in, in more of a grand strategy sense, what is the path forward so we can maintain a, a robust relationship with our European allies? Honestly, the most important thing right now is for the Senate to start confirming our ambassadors and our assistant secretaries because all the diplomacy, not all, but a lot of, too much of the diplomacy is being done by the White House right now. And I was in the NSC, uh, in the White House for almost five years. And when you come from the White House, people listen, but there's not enough of you <laughs> and you're busy and your job, main job is not diplomacy, but coordinating policy inside the US government. 
And, and that's how we're doing a lot of the diplomacy right now is out of the White House. And so we've got, the main thing is we've got to get people in place. It's taken too long. The Biden administration is slow rolling the nominations for political reasons, I think. They're trying to stage the nominations to, for communications purposes politically. And the Senate is posturing, not most senators, but some senators like Hawley and Cruz are posturing. And, you know, get over it. If, you, if you're serious about competition with China, put the people in place we need to build the bridges with allies and partners to do it. I'd say that's the most important thing. We get butts in seats <laughs> and in airplanes, and that will help a lot. Mike Green, thank you so much for helping us get to the truth of the matter on this extremely complex set of issues that Americans are now learning to you know, really understand. Really appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 